This is an ABC podcast. Vladimir Putin was born in Leningrad, now St Petersburg, a city rebuilding after being essentially flattened in World War II. For both of his parents, it was a living nightmare. When he was born, they lived in a horrible apartment inside a crumbling, wobbly building. There was no hot water, no bathtub. It was cold and infested with rats. Now, I'm pretty sure that's the story. Putin has changed it a number of times. Lying about himself is kind of part of his deal. I suspect it goes back to his KGB training. This is former BBC journalist Philip Short, who has just finished piecing through the contradictory stories to write an epic biography of Putin. He says there is one thing that most historians seem to agree on, and that is that Putin was a fighter. This is a school friend of Putin. He remembered the way that Putin would tear into a fight with virtually anyone. In the early 1960s, Putin was short, thin and wiry. It still amazes me. He had no fear. He told his biographers in 2000, I was a hooligan. I was a real thug. In a fight, he could beat anyone because he'd get into a frenzy and fight to the end. He fought animals too. He likes to tell a story about the rats in his crumbling apartment building. The story goes that he used to chase them around with sticks. He tells this story all the time. Once he says he found a large rat and cornered it. His autobiography says suddenly it lashed around and threw itself at me. I was surprised and frightened. It chased him. He jumped away and just managed to escape it by slamming the door on its nose. Putin says that this taught him a quick and lasting lesson on the meaning of the word cornered. When he tells the story, he's implying that he's the rat facing the stick, trying to fight his way out. And I've often thought about that in the context of Ukraine. He's not going to walk away from this fight. He's going to go on until he has something which he can portray as victory. In invading Ukraine, he's shown the world yet again. He's a fighter, a thug. That part of the legend is clearly true. Throughout his career, he's been cornering rats and winning. Crimea, Georgia, Chechnya, Syria, he won those fights. But in doing that, he hasn't paid attention to the lesson from his own rat story. Sometimes, when you're chasing an enemy much smaller than you, that's seemingly helpless, they're stronger than you realised. And sometimes, the rat fights back. I'm Matt Bevan, and yes, we're back where we started, with the old theme music and everything. For 20 years, Vladimir Putin was happy to mostly lurk in the shadows, trying and occasionally succeeding to manipulate the rest of the world into doing what he wanted them to do. But this year, he chucked that out the window. His invasion of Ukraine has turned global security and the global economy upside down. And we're going to spend six episodes finding out why he did it, why it seems to have gone so badly, and whether peace can be found while he is still in power. So stay subscribed and tell your friends we're back. This is Russia if you're listening. (music) 
Vladimir Putin has been obsessed with taking back control of Ukraine for three decades. But he didn't make an attempt to topple the entire government until his 22nd year in power. The question that intrigues me is not so much why, but why now? I think the answer begins with a TV show in 2021. Direct Line with Vladimir Putin is an annual event watched by millions of Russians. The whole show is Putin answering questions from Russian citizens who send in video questions or even call in live over the phone. In 2021, the second year of the COVID pandemic, the Russian people were tired. 100,000 people had officially died from the virus, though that's likely to have been a significant undercount. The people had a lot of questions and complaints and they called the direct line to air them. The Russian president spent three hours and 42 minutes answering 68 questions. The Moscow Times says they're vetted beforehand, but it is still done on live TV. There were people angry about air pollution in Omsk, angry at the effects of climate change in Siberia, angry at schools falling down in Vladivostok. An old lady was angry that there was no gas available on her street, but the local mayor had gas connected to his house. A woman said she was being threatened by authorities for reporting a leaking roof at the local kindergarten. Putin promised to deal with all of these issues personally, like a father promising to deal with problems for his children. He promised to look into pollution in Omsk. He promised to tackle climate change. He promised a new school in Vladivostok, a gas connection for the old lady. Swift punishment for the officials threatening the lady over a leaky roof. In Russia, where the media, courts, parliament and church now all report to Putin, this show is essentially the last democratic institution left. What role does that TV show play? Why, why does he do that? If he could talk directly to Russians, he would be able to persuade them of his point of view. Philip Short has watched more than his fair share of the direct line show. I mean, what is amusing is that he doesn't actually need to phone up any or get his people to phone up any mayor. Any mayor or governor who finds that he's being questioned on the direct line within minutes tries to get it sorted out. But for Putin, the broadcast isn't just about scaring the living hell out of local mayors. It's an exercise in public relations. It's very effective. He's been doing this show in various guises for the last few decades, but there's one thing that he never talks about. He has tried genuinely to keep his daughters and even all the grandchildren and his private life generally completely away from the spotlight. But in the last few direct line shows, he had been breaking that rule. This was a very different kind of Putin. So what's behind the emergence of this different kind of Putin? Philip Short has a theory. There are Russians in Moscow, Russian observers, who do agree with me. You know, opinions are frankly all over the place. It's speculative and controversial. The emergence of this softer Putin, the one talking about spending time with his family, led Philip Short to believe he was intending to retire. That's kind of surprising, considering he'd only just passed a constitutional amendment which would allow him to remain president well into the 2030s. I'm not saying that was not an option, but I think fundamentally that was not the goal. The goal was to prevent himself becoming a lame duck because 
If everyone knew that he couldn't stand again in 2024, they'd all spend their lives talking about who's going to succeed. Basically, if he ruled out running for another term, his inner circle would do nothing else but fight over who would get to succeed him. Succession is a very tricky thing in Russia. Historically, the transition from one leader to the next tends to involve a lot of people getting shot. Putin has said that talk of succession undermines the nation. He's also 70 years old and has said that he doesn't want to die in office. He doesn't want chaos. He would want to pick someone to succeed him and have that transition run smoothly. So he cut out that completely by making it appear that he could stay on if he wished to much longer. He also changed the constitution so that former presidents were given a lifetime gig as a member of parliament and blanket immunity from prosecution. I wonder who that's for. So maybe Putin was planning to retire, maybe he wasn't. We can't know for sure, but either way, Putin is a man interested in his legacy. How he will be remembered among the leaders of Russia. Perhaps this is why during COVID, Putin turned his mind west of Russia to Ukraine. During the Direct Line show in 2021, Putin steered the conversation away from collapsing kindergartens and mares with gas heating and into a discussion about Ukraine. He wanted to make sure everyone understood that there's no difference between Ukrainians and Russians. The only difference between them, according to Putin, is who runs their countries. At this point, Ukraine and Russia had been at war for seven years. In 2014, Putin had invaded the Crimean Peninsula in southern Ukraine and declared it to be part of Russia. He'd also backed separatists who were trying to establish independent Russia-friendly republics in Ukraine's east. Putin was asked whether he would meet with the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky to try and find a way to end the war, which by this point had killed 14,000 people. He replied, why meet with President Zelensky if he's accepted the full external management of his country? Ukraine's decisions aren't made in Kyiv, but in Washington, in Berlin and Paris. What is there to talk about with President Zelensky? He said that the key thing was that Ukrainians and Russians are the same and the proof was in the history of the two countries. Then he said, by the way, I've thought it over and I'll write an analytical article and I'll explain my view of this subject. And I hope that people in Russia and Ukraine will read it. After nearly four hours, direct line with Vladimir Putin was over and it was clear Ukraine was on his mind. It was the middle of the COVID lockdown. Some people made sourdough, some started podcasts, some adopted a pet. But Putin locked himself inside his bunker, isolated from the rest of the world, and started reading about the glory days of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union pouring over dusty old books. He doesn't really have hobbies. Intellectually, history is what turns him on. And he's become gradually over the years more and more interested. Yevgenia Albats, chief editor of the independent Russian newspaper The New Times, put it a little more bluntly. Putin, you know, definitely invested a lot of time reading all this shitty literature and unfortunately it had a great impact on him. 
Remember, if Philip Short's theory is to be believed, Putin is looking for a grand finale for his time as Russian president to cement his legacy as a great leader. Now we see that he was reading the most, you know, conservative literature that existed before 1917, before the revolution. All these, you know, Russian nationalists who were obsessed with the idea of Russian imperial standing, who kept writing that Ukraine was nothing, that, you know, no state as Ukraine exists anymore. And so Putin, as promised on his TV show, started writing a very long, hot take about Ukraine. Came up uh, with uh, his big article, which was published in each and every Russian newspaper, saying there are no such people as Ukrainians, that basically it's one nation, Russians and Ukrainians is one nation, one country. The article, titled On the Historical Unity of Ukrainians and Russians, was just under 7,000 words long. It told a thousand-year story, arguing that modern Ukraine has no historical basis and was created by the Soviet Union. Much of it was stuff he'd been saying for decades, but he also said something new, right at the end of the article. He wrote, We will never allow our historical territories to be used against Russia, and anyone who attempts to do so will destroy their own country. At the time, people didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it, but in hindsight, that was a clear threat. He wasn't looking for a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine anymore. He was looking for a way to destroy the very idea of its existence. It would have been the absolute you know, crowning achievement of his career and the core element of his political legacy. In Ukraine, President Zelensky said he didn't have time to read the whole article because he was too busy with important meetings, but it was very nice that President Putin could find time to write something so long. As Putin plotted and schemed, Ukraine held a massive parade to celebrate their 30th year of independence. In Kyiv, troops marched through the city in front of thousands of Ukrainians waving flags. The parade's clear message was that Vladimir Putin was wrong. Ukrainians and Russians are not the same. The parade was about celebrating the fall of the Soviet Union, the moment Ukraine became its own country, separate from Russia. The parade featured 11-year-old actor and singer Asenia Sleznova singing this song, written while Ukraine was still under Soviet rule, about how it was a uniquely special place. It was a clear theme all the way through. Ukraine was its own thing now. American and European troops marched alongside the Ukrainian army. European songs were played. Russia was not mentioned at all. Looking down over the parade was the slightly awkward-looking Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. The 43-year-old president was more comfortable at a comedy gig than overseeing military parades. He was a TV comedian and movie star who had two years earlier become the president. 
He'd spent those two years trying to fulfil three big promises he'd campaigned on, and things weren't going particularly well. Okay, so I've hit record here. Thank you, Matthew, and thank you for being interested in Ukraine. Mikhail Minikov, a Ukrainian philosopher from the Wilson Centre in Washington, D.C., explains Zelensky's big policies. Economic growth, deoligarchization, peace with Russia, so finding resolution of the Donbass and Crimean issues. Fix the economy, take on the billionaire oligarchs and end the war with Russia. One of the oligarchs Zelensky tried to take down was Petro Poroshenko, the guy he defeated in the election. Back when Poroshenko was president, he loved acting tough against Putin and fighting culture wars, and he kind of ignored most other things. Poroshenko tried to make Ukrainian the official language of Ukraine, a country where 15 million people speak Russian at home. Because Poroshenko played so much with uh, ethnic, confessional issues, with foreign policy, and he totally forgot about economy and uh, social issues, which were becoming more and more uh, important for Ukrainian people. Poroshenko made his money in confectionery, He's known as the Chocolate King. How did he become the Chocolate King? Well, when the Soviet Union fell, he scored the government-owned Karl Marx chocolate factory at a fire sale price and built his business and media empire around it. Yes, he bought a factory named after the father of communism and used it to build a capitalist empire. This is how Ukraine was taken over by oligarchs. Guys bought stuff that formerly belonged to the Soviet Union and ran them for profit. And then they used that money to gain political power. So here was this new president, Zelensky, who was failing to crack down on oligarchs like Poroshenko. In fact, he was failing on his other promises too. And all these three promises in 2021 were seen as non-fulfilled. The oligarchs were fighting back. Someone tried to assassinate one of the guys helping Zelensky with his oligarch crackdown. Vladimir Putin was solidifying his grip on the territory he'd claimed in 2014, building a giant road and rail bridge between Russia and Crimea. And as for his attempts to fix the economy, well, COVID was causing big issues. His popularity was dropping down. But again, it was dropping down below 30%. Now, here's the tricky thing about post-Soviet states. The post-Soviet politics creates a lot of incentives for autocratization. And this autocracy is a constant temptation for every ruler. Of the 15 countries which emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union, only three are successful, flourishing democracies. Eight, including Russia, are run by straight-up dictators. And the other four, including Ukraine, are in a constant struggle between democracy and autocracy. So if you look at Ukrainian political system, president is a very strange post. It's higher than just executive. He is the head of state with uh, a lot of informal powers. Every president after in Ukraine after a year or 18 months starts tending to make these uh, dictatorial decisions. Every president of Ukraine after a while starts acting a bit like a dictator. And Zelensky that guy who now seems so different from Putin was no exception. He starts using more and more less constitutional means to rule, let's put it this way. 
he started bypassing parliament and running the country using his hand-picked National Security Council. He started cracking down on parts of the media owned by oligarchs, putting restrictions on journalists he accused of unfairly attacking him. He removed the immunity from criminal prosecution which applied to all elected officials and started accusing politicians, including Ukraine's Willy Wonka, Petro Poroshenko, of treasonous cooperation with Russia. Trouble was approaching Zelensky on all fronts. And then Vladimir Putin published his manifesto about Ukraine. It's no wonder he was looking uncomfortable on the stage at the Independence Day parade. But things were about to get even worse. There were growing concerns in Europe over another build-up of Russian troops along the border with Ukraine. The action prompted a warning from NATO, but it's just the latest development in a series of aggressive moves by Moscow after missiles were used to destroy a Russian satellite earlier this week. Just a few weeks after the parade, Vladimir Putin began to send troops to Ukraine's borders. The troops surrounded Ukraine on three sides, from the north, east and south. He'd done this before earlier on in 2021, but it hadn't come to anything. It was hard to tell whether this time was different. Experts and analysts around the world tried to read the tea leaves. How concerning is this massing of troops on the Ukraine border? Do you think there is an intention to invade? Well, of course, it's hard to know, right? Uh, And and, uh, that's part of, I think, what's going on. For most experts, a full-scale invasion of Ukraine seemed like an insane thing for Putin to do. The risks were too high and not worth the potential reward. But in between the last troop build-up and this one, Putin had released his long, long, obsessive, ahistorical essay. The Americans were worried, and they began to look harder. CIA analysts who had spent their careers studying Russia put together an assessment concluding Putin felt like he was running out of time to establish himself as one of Russia's great leaders. He was coming for Ukraine, and the US needed to warn them. In November 2021, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken was dispatched to Glasgow for the big UN summit on climate change. He took Zelensky aside. They stood two feet away from each other and spoke candidly. He told him his country was about to be invaded. Blinken told the Washington Post later that it was awkward. Zelensky both believed him and didn't. Remember, Putin hadn't followed through a number of times in the past. He was also afraid the Ukrainian economy could collapse if the news went public and created a panic. Zelensky remained quiet about the news of a possible invasion. Good afternoon. Thanks, everybody, for uh, giving me the opportunity to be here. I'd like to make a few comments. And so the U.S. felt they had no choice but to go public. We are in the window when an invasion could begin at any time, should Vladimir Putin decide to order it. It didn't surprise me that they'd collected that sort of information with modern advanced methods of intelligence collection. This is Paul Dibb, a former top official in Australian intelligence. But what did surprise me was the Americans making it public in such detail. So was the US strategy designed to spook Putin or to convince other countries to throw more support towards Zelensky in Ukraine? I think it was more the latter. It's very hard to scare the Russians off under Putin. He's not easily scared. But I think it was to, A, advise the Ukrainians, but also to sort of put a bit of backbone, dare one say it, into European members of NATO and the European Union, which in the past have not been noted, many of them, 
for having their backbone when it comes to Russia. And that applies particularly in the past to Germany. But while the US was warning anyone who'd listen, in Ukraine, there was a lot of scepticism. The American warnings talked about large-scale missile attacks all around the country, including in Kiev. This is Time magazine journalist Simon Schuster, who has spent much of this year talking to Zelensky and his team. They talked about uh, a Russian march straight for Kiev, straight for the capital, and an attempt to decapitate the government, kill or capture Zelensky. You know, these all sounded at the time, toward the end of last year, like complete nightmare scenarios, which to me, personally, as, as a reporter who has covered Russia and Ukraine for more than 15 years, sounded ludicrous. They sounded suicidal for Putin. They sounded like something Putin would never go for because it just goes against all of his interests. In January, the CIA director travelled to Kiev to meet Zelensky. He said the invasion was not only coming, it was going to be bigger than expected. Russia wouldn't try to nibble more bits of Ukraine away. They would attack the capital and try to decapitate the government. Russian sleeper cells were potentially already in Kiev waiting to strike. Maybe Ukraine's intelligence network wasn't picking up the same signals, or maybe the CIA is not always seen as the most trustworthy organisation after massive intelligence failures over the past few decades. But Zelensky remained sceptical. To me, as an observer, the American warnings also looked stupid and impossible. I was pretty much aligned with President Zelensky and his team in that. US President Joe Biden warned again that the Russians were coming. Do you feel confident that he that he hasn't made that decision already? As of this moment, I'm convinced he's made the decision. It turned out the Americans were right. We believe that they will target Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, a city of 2.8 million innocent people. With his military in place, the only thing Putin had left to do was to sell it to the Russian public. In the last week of February 2022, Vladimir Putin gave a series of speeches. What he said was very similar to what he had written in his essay six months earlier. But this time what he said was angrier and more extreme. He said the government of Ukraine had failed to look after Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and so he was going to look after them instead, by conducting what he called a special military operation. Putin also offered a reason for this invasion, one that went beyond his usual argument that Ukraine is part of Russia. He said that Ukraine was riddled with Nazis. He said the Ukrainian government was a puppet of the West full of far-right nationalists and neo-Nazis, and he would send his military to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. From the outside, this seemed to make no sense at all. It was like Putin was living in a fantasy land. There is a neo-Nazi political party in Ukraine, but they only hold one seat in the 450-seat parliament. The president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is Jewish. His grandfather's parents and brothers were all killed in the Nazi Holocaust, along with a million other Ukrainian Jews. He and his government are obviously not Nazis. The experts I spoke to called this out for what it was. It was just bullshit. It was nothing real. 
Mikhail Minikov says by calling the Ukrainian government Nazis, Putin wasn't talking about Nazis in the way we in the West usually imagine them. It's specifically a Soviet way of talking about them. Basically, Nazism was the last big enemy in Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union was attacked by the Nazis in World War II, the war had already been going on for nearly two years. By then, almost all of Europe was under Nazi control. The Soviet army fought not only Germans, but French, Dutch, Italian, Belgian, Scandinavian, Polish and other soldiers who had also joined the Nazis. Eastern Europe fought with the West. And for us, West was not US or United Kingdom. It was Western Europe with Germany, France and other countries that contributed to the Nazi case. What Putin means when he says Nazis is European enemies. Defeating the Nazis in the 1940s solidified the power of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, and Putin hoped that defeating the Nazis in the 2020s would solidify his power too. He called on Ukrainian soldiers to surrender and allow Russia to take Kiev. He gave that speech on the morning of the beginning of the war, where he was, you know, talking about the denazification of Ukraine, that Ukraine was run by Nazis and drug addicts and, and all these, you know, extraordinary things that he was saying. Do you think he believes those things that he wrote and said about Ukraine and Ukrainians in the lead-up to the war, or was it pure propaganda? He doesn't believe a word of that. He doesn't believe they're Nazis. He knows that uh, the Ukrainians are not carrying out genocide against the Russian-speaking population. It's all to fire up the domestic audience. Putin believed that the US and European countries would want to stay out of the situation. He expected that Vladimir Zelensky, the comedian-turned-unpopular president, would flee into exile. And without a leader or support, he believed Ukrainian civilians and soldiers would surrender to Russian troops. Well, we are breaking in to bring you some uh, news that just come in. Russian President Vladimir Putin says he has authorised a special military operation in Ukraine's Donbass region. It was the morning of the 24th of February, 2022. Dawn is breaking there, and the nation of Ukraine is at risk of breaking too. Russian fighter jets were in the air over Ukraine. Russian helicopters carrying elite paratroopers were flying towards Kyiv. Russian troops were attempting to take control of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the country's north. Oh, fuck! That's a missile! That's a fuck. missile! That's a fucking missile! In the country's south, tank battalions were driving out of Crimea and putting Ukrainian towns under siege. In the east, artillery was bombarding Ukraine's second largest city. Military bases across the country were being hit by cruise missiles. Russian warships were bombarding Ukrainian islands in the Black Sea. They were winning and Ukrainian defence was being systematically removed. 
almost everyone expected that within days, Russian tanks would be rolling down the streets of Kiev. The situation looked catastrophic. Ukraine's army was outnumbered five to one by a nuclear-armed military force considered the second or third most powerful in the world. They had an inexperienced comedian as their commander-in-chief. Putin sat in his bunker, watching on TV screens as his massive military machine reclaimed what he thought rightfully belonged to Russia. Zelensky heard the helicopters, explosion, gunfire and air raid sirens as the horrific picture the American government had been begging him to believe was becoming real. He sent his wife and kids away, knowing it might be the last time he would ever see them. Almost everyone told Vladimir Zelensky that he had to flee to safety too. He said the enemy has marked him as target number one and his family as target number two. European leaders called Zelensky asking how they could help. He said it might be the last time they saw him alive. So Zelensky was cornered, like a rat facing a stick. He's a president with little military experience and falling public support. But there is one thing he can do, and he was born for it. That's next on Russia If You're Listening. This series is written by me, Matt Bevan. Series producers are Yasmin Parry and Will Ockenden. If you want to hear more about Vladimir Putin, his obsession with Ukraine and how he laid the groundwork for this war, it's all in season three of this podcast. I recommend checking it out. And if you want to hear more from Philip Short about his incredible biography of Vladimir Putin and how what we're seeing now may have been part of his grand retirement plan, you can hear an extended interview with him exclusively on the ABC Listen app. We'll catch you next week.